are so excited to be back here um, listening to the Word of God, to be able to bring you the Word of God. I am just excited about what the Lord is doing, um, even online through this church. It is remarkable that God is able to do what he is doing. I pray that you are getting adjusted to your new normal. I noticed that there are lots of people who keep using that term, the new normal, and it is quite abnormal. But I pray that this week you have nestled yourself into the grace of God and you have found solace in the grace of God and you are enjoying the people that God has placed around you. Um, I'm just excited to be able to bring the word of God, even though it is through this channel. God is just so faithful in all that he does. I'm particularly excited about this word that God has um, given us through his word today, and I'm just so happy that I can bring it to you. Now, if you remember on last week, we talked about what the life of the blessed man looked like, what the life of the blessed person looked like. And we looked at one, what the blessed man is, but we also looked at what the blessed man effectively wasn't. We also looked at the flimsy definitions that the world has out there for what it means to be blessed and even what prosperity and charismatic circles call blessed. And what we deduced on last week is that ultimately the blessed person is the person that has received the gift of God's grace and salvation. And so my hope is that you have a clearer, firmer understanding of what it actually means to be blessed, seeing that having received the gift of eternal life is more valuable than any other financial blessing we think we can receive, any health blessing we think we can receive, the fact that our eternity is fixed in God should give us more hope than anything else. So my prayer is that you understood very clearly what it truly means to be blessed. Now, one of the things that we take note of is that in that text, we are presented with the contrasting view. So we are given the blessed man, the man who is, in fact, righteous and just and found righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but we also have to wrestle with and deal with the man that has rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what we want to do today is take a look at not just the comfort that we have in being blessed and righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we also want to look at the life of the person who is rejecting Jesus and understand what that means inevitably for them as well. You all may remember a few weeks ago, my friend and my brother Josh Evans came here and he preached a phenomenal sermon called Warning Your One. Well, today what I want to do is preach what I would call the preliminary to that sermon and call it Identifying Your One. What we want to do today is see that as much as we have the gift of eternal life and that there are characteristics that define us as Christians and as righteous people in the eyes of God, there are also definable characteristics of the person who is outside of the will of God, who is outside of the righteousness of God, who is outside of salvation. What we want to do today is 
give you a clear picture of what that person may look like, perhaps in your own life, so that you can clearly identify them, not to beat them up, but as an opportunity to present the gospel to that person. I know last week, we were all probably given a great deal of comfort knowing that as Christians, we have solidified our place in eternity because of Jesus Christ. But just like last week, we were given great comfort about that. I want us to feel a great discomfort knowing that there are many people around us, even today that we know, that we love, who are walking outside of the will of God, who are not secure in their eternity, and who are not living the righteous life that God has for them. And what we want to be able to do is not only identify them today, but to be able to be fully equipped to prepare ourselves to give those people the gospel. Listen, inevitably, we all must deal with our eternity, and there is an eternity that awaits all of us. On one hand, for the believer, our eternity is secure in Christ. And on the other hand, for the unbeliever, their eternity is secure as well, but it is not secure in Christ. And what we want to do is present the gospel to them so that we can see that they be saved through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So my prayer is that this sermon will be a tremendous blessing to you, but it will also give you an opportunity to witness to the people around you who need the gospel, that you may be able to identify your one. So in order to do that, we're actually going to jump back into Psalm chapter 1 and verse 3. We left off on verse 3 last week. We're going to pick right back up on verse 3 and then carry on through the end of the chapter. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked Uh, will perish. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word that you have presented to us today, God. Help us identify our one today, Lord. Help us see the characteristics of the person who is living outside of your will, who is living in rebellion to you, God, so that we can see past the facade of their righteousness and see that they desperately, like we all have needed, need salvation. God, it is our prayer that you will give us an opportunity to witness to the lost, even in quarantine, God, that you will give us opportunities to witness and to bring people into the faith. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said earlier, we looked last week at what the blessed man looked like, and we deduced carefully that the blessed man must, in fact, be a righteous man. And if you remember, we did mention the contrasting man last week as well, knowing that that contrasting man contrasts the blessed, righteous man in every way. With that, as those who are God's righteous, we must seek to effectively identify all of the people around us who may fall in the category of the unrighteous. 
Listen, as comforting as the life of the blessed and righteous man is, knowing that we will spend an eternity with Jesus, we must also be discomforted knowing that there are people around us who have an opportunity to spend an eternity in hell and damnation, in total separation from God. Knowing that, though, it begs us to ask this question. How do we identify them? How can we tell if a person is actually a Christian around us or not? Now, I can tell you this. There is one thing that we should not look at. We cannot look merely at their words. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns us. He says, listen, if I am responsible for being for being the judge of my own life, I will never find anything of guilt within my own lives. We will never find anything of of worth to accuse ourselves of. But my brothers and sisters, we are not the judges of our own lives. The Bible is the judgment that we all compare our lives to. And there is a righteous judge in Jesus Christ that awaits us all. So we cannot merely listen to the words of people that we converse with on a daily basis and think that that is enough to deduce whether or not they are a Christian. I am a witness as much as you probably are, too, that people will always be able to contrive a relationship merely with their words. But we must look to their lives and the way that they live to see where they truly stand with God. And that brings us very quickly to our first point today. Our first point is the unrighteous life, the unrighteous life. This life is literally night and day to the life of the believer. On one sense, the righteous are stable and settled and measured and fixed and firm and steadfast in where they are. But like we said last week, they are close to God and they delight in the very law of God. Nothing brings them more fulfillment than obedience to the word of God. Now, that's a fact of life and a true identifier of the person who is truly righteous. Now, they are not perfectly sinless. We do understand that. We understand that there is sin in all of our lives. But for the righteous person, we take no delight in our sins. In fact, when we sin, and we will, we are grieved by the fact that we sin. But we never indulge ourselves callously in our sin. The righteous life is always a productive and fruitful life, regardless of the ever-changing society and climate around us. Now, the unrighteous on the contrary, are driven by their own personal passions and their full delight comes out of what most satisfies them. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, I can easily identify these people. These must be the worst people that I know, but it is often the best people that we know who aren't Christians who slide through the cracks. In fact, I heard Vada Bakum say it like this one time. He says, people always make this mistake. People always believe that when a city has been overtaken by unrighteousness, that there will be complete disorder, that there will be chaos, that there will be discombobulation. But that often is not the case. 
In a town of unrighteousness, there is usually well-behaved children, nicely driven cars, perfectly ordered society where all the people go to their houses and worship everything they have in opposition to God. In fact, he said that they live peacefully without God. The Bible tells us that there are many people who live with a form of godliness. They know all the lingo, but they deny the power thereof. So if you have a form of godliness, you can quote the scriptures, you can make it to church, you can give all the tithes, but that doesn't make you righteous. And that is the mistake that many unrighteous people make is that they think that their so-called righteous deeds will bring them into a right relationship with God. But the fact of the matter is, is that the only way anything we do can be righteous is if God himself has then declared us righteous. It's simple. So how do we identify if someone isn't among the righteous? The text here says that the wicked are not rooted in God. It doesn't say they aren't successful, but it says that they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, why does it use the word chaff? Like, I know we probably don't know what chaff is, but let me give you an explanation of what chaff would have been. When many of the people who were farmers were harvesting seed, if you notice with a seed, there's always like that rough part around the seed, the husk, the hull, and you take it off and you just discard it because the seed is the thing that's of value. Now, when you get done with that chaff, you just discard it. And then the wind comes and it blows that chaff wherever it may go. It is scattered by the wind. It has no value. It has no footing. There is an emptiness to the person that this description represents. The unrighteous life is filled with emptiness. It is devoid of true value because their validation comes from everything other than God. Their justification comes from everything other than God. They find their peace and their reason to live in their job. They find their peace and reason to live in who they're married to, how much they make. But they don't find that peace in solace in God. And one of the things that we notice about these people, while they may have everything that they desire, still the desire goes unquenched. While they may be working the job that they desire to work, their need for validation still never ceases. But there is a strict warning here, and I think that we need to see what God says about the unrighteous person. He says that they will not stand in the judgment. They will not stand in the judgment. This is an extremely serious condemnation to the unrighteous. And we should hope that no one would suffer from this fate. We should desire that no one would fall into this horrendous state of affairs. The reality of the unrighteous is that there is great insecurity in their eternity. Now, the irony in that is the more secure they get on this earth, the more insecure their eternity grows. 
Right now, we have a difficult time fully conceptualizing just how devastating this is for those around us, but it is a severe punishment. It is a very, very severe punishment, a punishment by which no one can recover from. And that brings us to our second point today, the unrighteous end. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and as we mentioned last week, we celebrated with great joy that as the blessed and righteous of God, that we have a definable end that will enjoy eternal, eternally with Jesus. But this week, we must actually lament over the end of the unrighteous all around us. Yes, for now, many believe that they will escape the righteous judgment, but the reality is, the reality is that it is awaiting the person who rejects the righteousness of God. We mentioned earlier having that form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Well, that form comes with its own reward, people. It comes with a reward that God has prepared for them as well. And I want you to understand this. For the unrighteous life, that reward will be both earthly and eternal as well. Look at what Jesus says about the unrighteous. He says in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here, Jesus tells us what should be a frightening condemnation for us. He says that those that the unrighteous who pretend to be righteous are driven by their need and their desire to be seen of others. They are far more concerned about their lives being acceptable by the people around them than they are about their lives being acceptable to God. Now, these people, I will admit, these people are sometimes difficult to identify because even Jesus tells us that there are people that we will never know were false, that we will never know were pretenders, and that he will perform the divine separation in the last day. But we must see who they are, and we have a duty to God to see who they are. They are characterized as people who do good deeds, but their hearts are wrong. And the frightening thing about this text is that Jesus says here that they have received their reward. Now, this means two things. And I mentioned it just a second ago. That reward is both earthly and eternal. Now, in the first sense, they receive the reward because they simply got noticed. That is part of their reward. You saw them. You recognized them. You acknowledged them. You saw them doing that good deed. And so that is a part of the reward. And they readily receive that. That's the earthly part. 
But there's a second notion to that reward, and that's the frightening part as well, that the final reward for them is coming. And when he says that, that is a warning, and we have to see it here. The unrighteous have a reward that awaits them, and it is eternal separation and damnation from God. How does the Psalter here describe it? He says that they will not stand in the judgment. You have to understand that in Israel, there is a real justice system that was created to eradicate wrongdoing, and the penalty was severe, oftentimes death. Their justice system, however, failed to compare to that of the justice of Jesus Christ. We must realize that and we must put it in perspective for people. The unrighteous will always try to wear a coat of righteousness so that we will not see them, but that we would only see their good works. Throughout the course of their lives, they will go on thinking that their works are sufficient, that their works are enough. And unless we get a hold of them, one day they will have to stand before the white judgment throne of Christ. And they will realize on that great day that their works meant nothing. Listen, as this is the motivation for the lost It must be ours as well. We need to be ignited. We need to be set on fire knowing that there are people around us that we love who will perish thinking that they will be preserved. I want you to also see that the writer here parallels again the lives of the righteous and the unrighteous. You remember last week we said that in the scripture, the righteous do not stand in the way of the sinners. They don't stand in the way of the unrighteous, meaning that they don't walk in their path. They go a different direction. But here he says that the unrighteous don't stand, will not stand in the judgment, nor will they stand in the congregation of the righteous. While the righteous never stand in path of sinners, the sinner also inevitably will not stand in the true congregation of the righteous. This is the gathering together of God's saints with himself in the final day. The next thing that he says here is that the Lord knows. He knows the way of his righteous. This is as intimate an expression that we can have of true relationship with God, knowing that he knows us intimately and he knows the path that we follow because we are walking in the path that he has already set before us. Let's be honest. We all have people who are around us who are professing a relationship with God that they are not practicing. And I think we can see that there is a difference in how they stand. There is a difference in how they walk. And there is a difference in who they sit with. Unless we grasp that there is a real impending judgment coming, we will always let people around us continue their facade of faith. And finally, that brings us to our last point, our cause. Finally, in this text, we have been given a great cause, people. 
In this last contrasting verse, while God knows intimately the way of the righteous, he also knows where the path of the unrighteous leads, and that is to destruction. He says here, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is our cause because this is the cause of God. We know this because Peter tells us this in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 3 and 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, re should reach repentance. Listen, the cause of God was to send his son to pay the penalty of sin that we all owed. He endured the wrath of God that God poured out on him that was intended for us. He poured that wrath out on his son so that we would not have to receive that penalty. That is God's just response to sin is his wrath. Now, while saving faith is the responsibility of God, denying that faith falls on the individual. If God is willing to crucify his only son to pour out the wrath that he stored up for us eternally all on his son, imagine how much more we should be willing to do in order that no one would perish as God desires that no one should perish. We must carefully and crucially identify the people in our lives that we may have doubts about. And we must let them know that there is a real, true reality that awaits them and that what they see right now is not their reality. On both sides of the fence, the current reality debilitates us. For the Christian, sometimes we are downcast because of the reality of this world. But for the non-Christian, there is often great hope and happiness in this, thinking that this is the true reality, but this is just a glimpse. We must make everyone aware of that. I know that, in, that it can be challenging. I know that it can be uncomfortable but we should want no one to perish. So allow me to ask you this question. Do you know your one? Do you know your one? Can you look here at the writing of the Psalter and, and is someone that you know put in your mind? Are you put in mind? Does this make you aware of your own self in a way that you have never seen before? What we want to do during this time of uncertainty and insecurity is go out of our way to give everyone we know the only true security that they can ever have, and that is in Jesus Christ. Right now, we're going to pray, but while we pray, we're going to pray for your one. We are going to pray for the one person, possibly more, that you know without a shadow of a doubt needs the gospel. At the end of this prayer, if there is one person that you have in your mind, I just want you to type, I know my one. I know my one. That's all you need to do. Put that, I know my one. And I want you to commit to reaching that one with the gospel. That is the prayer today. 
So if the Lord has placed a specific individual on your heart, I want you to write today, I know my one. And I want you to make a careful commitment to witness to that person, to get the gospel into the hands of that person. Let's pray.